start with this story I came across. There was a pastor, a doctor, and an engineer that were playing a round of golf together one morning when they were forced to wait for a particularly slow group of golfers ahead of them. The engineer was fuming. He says, what's with these guys? We've been waiting at this tee for 15 minutes. The doctor chimed in, I don't know. I have never seen anybody play as poorly as they do. The pastor was looking and he said, hey, here comes the head groundskeeper. Let's ask him what's going on. So as the man walked up, the pastor said, excuse me, but what's with that group ahead of us? They're rather slow, aren't they? The greenskeeper said, yes, but that's a group of blind firefighters. They lost their sight, saving our clubhouse from a fire last year, so we let them play whenever they want for free. The pastor immediately said, wow, that's sad. I'll remember to pray for them. The doctor said, that's a good idea, pastor, and I have a friend that's an ophthalmologist. I'll see if he thinks he can do anything. The engineer was silent a little longer and was deep in thought and finally said, why don't these guys play at night <laughs> when they won't be in my way, you know? Come on, thinking like an engineer or an IT guy. Come on, let's just think this through. And so I kind of hesitated to open with a blind joke. I mean, we're talking about Jesus healing the blind, and it's like, you know, usually you try to find something on topic, and I thought, well, that's kind of questionable, but the joke's really on the engineer, so I mean, yeah, that's okay. Right, Pat? That's right. <laughs> but our topic today in the series, Chris has been teaching on, Lord, I need a miracle. Today, the topic is when there's no more insight into life. When we just can't see what's ahead, or we can't see what to do next, or we can't see why things are the way they are, we need God's light. So we're going to look in the ninth cha in cha uh, John chapter 9 today at the sign of Jesus healing a blind man. Before we do that, and by the way, this blind man, it's not recorded if he was a golfer, so... I don't know if that's related. But some background for this. The first eight chapters of John, Chris has been going through, and we've been looking at the other miracles of Jesus. And we've seen that Jesus has claimed that he's, he's from God. He's claimed to be equal to God, and he's even claimed to be God. And all the signs and miracles that he's performed have shown that he's got the power and authority to back those claims. But... The Jews, especially the leaders of the Jews, are rejecting him because, hey, they've read the Old Testament scriptures. They know a Messiah is promised. They know a deliverer has been promised. But Jesus just isn't what they expected. They, I mean, hey, they're under Roman rule. They're, you know, downtrodden. They were expecting somebody to come riding in and lead them to victory politically and militarily. And so here's this man performing miracles and teaching things that they've never really heard. And they're rejecting him and even becoming hostile. So in that background, John has repeatedly stressed, as he's talked through these other miracles, that the reason they're, for their unbelief doesn't have anything to do with Jesus not being who he is. He is the Son of God. Their unbelief has, is a reflection of their own sin and their own refusal to believe him. But the people continue to just flock after him and worship the sign, worship the miracles, but lose the significance of the sign giver. So today, the sixth sign goes right to the heart of the need that they have, and that's blindness. We're going to talk about blindness. And just to look at blindness, in this blind man's situation, we see there is no cure for blindness. Using him as the background and the 
the, the message of our story, his blindness, there was no cure for it. It wasn't like he had just been you know, blinded by a bump on the head or a sudden flash of light and you could think it was going to pass. He was born blind. There's no cure for his blindness. And in that day and age, there was no career for the blind. There was no career. They didn't have organizations that would match the blind people up with jobs that they were capable of performing like we do now. There was no career except to be a beggar. If your family could not afford to support you or could just chose not to keep you on their payroll, so to speak, when you became an adult, you had nothing to do but beg. And so there was also little compassion for the blind. There was no cure, there was no career, and there was little compassion. As he sat there begging, you see, the, as we'll get into the story, people would go, hmm, is this the guy that sat there and begged? They never paid enough attention to him to really recognize him. There was very little compassion for the blind. So with this as the background, both the background involving Jesus and the turmoil surrounding his teaching, but also the background of the hopelessness of a blind man. Let's turn to John chapter 9. And it's a rather lengthy passage. It's uh, 41 verses in all. And that's longer than I normally read to start a lesson because I don't want anybody going to sleep and losing them. But there's much more here today than we can cover. There's so many things touched on that we're not going to be able to really get into, but the whole story just needs to be heard. So I want to read through this entire chapter, and I just want you to be attentive to God's Word and let Him speak to you as we read. So John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as he, talking about Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a blind man, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. And said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, Yes, this is he. And still others were saying, No, but, but he's like him. The blind man, the man healed, he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Just a side note here about the Sabbath. The Pharisees, in the Old Testament teaching, God had established the pattern with the Jews. You work six days, the seventh day is a Sabbath. It's a day of rest, a day of worship. Well, the Pharisees had expanded that teaching to the point where their view of not working on the Sabbath even made Jesus making that little lump of clay work. And so he was being criticized by the Pharisees for working on the Sabbath. So it's key to note that this did take place on the Sabbath. Going on in verse 15, then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A note about being put out of the synagogue. This is something that people would fear. The synagogue was the local house of worship, but also it was your social connection to the other people in your area. And there wasn't, like today, there wasn't like a synagogue on every corner where you could just walk a block farther and go to another one. And they had no real means of transportation to go to the next little town that might have one. So to be kicked out of the synagogue was a huge thing to these people. It, was, it would be a tragedy. So the parents were obviously a little hesitant to do that. But also, keep in mind, they said, hey, he's of age. He's an adult. Ask him. The miracle occurred to the blind man. Ask him. So, I mean, they also have something on their side of just saying, hey, they're not totally throwing the guy under the bus. He is the one that would know. But as a parent of adult children, and many of you are, I just want to, we're not responsible for adult children and their decisions. Um, I know there's some people that struggle with that, and it's a, it's a burden in their life. I, I didn't mean to look at somebody sitting next to their child. I, it, it just happened. I'll talk over here. Well, no, there's some over here, too. I, <laughs> but as, as adults, they're responsible for their decisions and their consequences. So as parents, you do have a right to let them go. But these parents here were forced into that situation of making that choice. And in verse 23, they say, he's of age, ask him. It's going on in verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could, not, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. They put him out of the synagogue, as his parents feared. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Keep in mind, this is the first time the blind man has seen Jesus. 
He was blind in the earlier encounter. He heard the voice, but he has never seen Jesus. So he doesn't recognize him. In verse 36, he says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who did not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So we see there at the end, the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees continues to build, even after this miracle. So this is today's passage. Rather lengthy, like I said, but worth reading. because It's a great story, and there's a lot there we're not going to get to. But the sign, the sign today is giving sight to the blind. Giving sight to the blind. And as I look at this, I think the miracle's twofold. The first one is the obvious one. Very first, very first parts of the chapter, Jesus gives sight to physically blind eyes. <clears throat> Jesus gives sight to physically blind eyes. He finds the blind man. He gives him his sight. And now, as we've already talked, this case was humanly hopeless. This blind man had been blind from birth, and it's not like there's doctors, you know, sitting in some big lofty building back in that day, diagramming the eye and saying, now if we do this, you know. No, they didn't have medical science like we do. There was no hope for someone born blind. It was a hopeless situation. But Jesus' compassion overcame the human hopelessness. And it is Jesus' compassion, because we see in this case, the verse says, as Jesus passed by, he saw him. And he stopped and healed him. It's not like this blind man had been seeking him. It's not like they were chasing Jesus down. Jesus' compassion in an unbeckoned move stopped to heal this man. Jesus' compassion is what overcame the man's hopelessness. Now, the cure was undeniable. The blind man openly confessed what had happened. The neighbors and his parents acknowledged what had happened. The Pharisees, though not directly acknowledging it, they couldn't deny it. They spent all this time investigating it. They had to admit that it happened. They were just opposing the one who had done it. So it was undeniable. So the physically blind man seeing was undeniably a miracle. But I think as we go through this passage, we'll also see the second miracle. That is that Jesus gives sight and boldness to spiritually blind eyes. He gives sight and boldness to spiritually blind eyes which then exposed spiritual blindness in others. We see that in the man talking with the Pharisees, how he had more spiritual insight than they did, even as teachers. But he gives sight and boldness to spiritually blind eyes. And the spiritually blind follow the same pattern as the physically blind. In our spiritual blindness, we're humanly hopeless. There is no rescue for us humanly if our spiritual blindness. And I... You know, as I was thinking about this, and the scary thing is I I think about this from my point of view, so this is me at fault also. I think sometimes we downplay how hopeless we are spiritually. You know, we say, well, I saved when I was a child. My life was not bad. Or, you know, I saved as a young adult, but I hadn't been involved. You know, my life was, was pretty nice. I was helping, you know. We downplay the fact that it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. We're sinners. And without God, without Christ, we're hopeless. Just like this blind man was hopeless humanly, 
Our spiritual blindness makes us hopeless, and only Jesus' compassion can overcome our hopelessness. Only his compassion. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, while we weren't even born, he died for us. He reached out without us pleading, without us seeking him. He reached out, and his compassion made a way out of our hopelessness. And the change, the cure, is undeniable. And it should be undeniable in our lives when people see our lives. They, you know, the, the people around us should go, wow, yeah, that's different. He's different. There's something different about them because of how they live. But do we as openly and freely share that as this blind man did his testimony? You know, that's something that I pondered that quite a bit this week as I worked on this. Am I as open with my faith about what God's done for me spiritually as this man was about what had happened to him physically? And that gets back to sometimes I think we downplay our need. But Jesus gave sight to both physical eyes and spiritual eyes. And that's what we're going to look at today is how that plays out and how we apply that. But now if you've ever read the whole book of John, read through the Bible, you've come to the last verse in the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25. And John says there, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail... I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, John just said, Jesus did so much stuff. There's no way to record it all. Well, so why pick these? You know, I mean, it's one of those things that every once in a while I'm reading something or listening to people talking or what. I'll just go, hmm, I wonder about that. And I do that often enough that Vicky's tired of it. So it's, it's not often that I go, hmm, I wonder about that. And she actually talks with me about it. I, I have most of these conversations with myself. And occasionally they get heated, but I, I always end up as friends. You know, it's, it's, it's what I do. And uh, Vicky's hoping this is a phase I'll grow out of. But I wonder about that, too. So. But y- you wonder, you know, if Jesus did all of these things that were beyond being able to record... Why did the Holy Spirit choose to inspire John to write these? Well, I mean, first thought is anybody that writes a biography has to limit what they put in it, right? I mean, there's nobody, I don't care how big an Abraham Lincoln fan you are, you don't want to know what he ate for breakfast every day. You don't want to know what he ate for breakfast on Tuesday versus Wednesday of the third week of January 9th. You know, you don't care. You don't want to know. So they have to limit it. And so, and I mean, you know how many thousands of pages that'd be? Nobody would read that. So it has to be limited to the things that are turning points, the things that are crucial in a person's development or the development of their career. Well, the Holy Spirit does the same thing here. He just inspired John to write things that are crucial to the story. They're crucial to the development of what's going on. And in this case... The blind beggar is a spot-on picture of our spiritual condition. This story is in there because it's us. It's directly applicable to us. It is a perfect picture of our spiritual condition. We're blind. We're blind. Just like this man physically, spiritually, we are blind. When Adam sinned, God said in Genesis 2.17, In the day that you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam didn't die that day physically. He lived for a hundred more years. But he died spiritually. He became blinded spiritually to the light of God. 
and we are blind because the next thing there in your notes is we were born blind. We were born blind, just like this man was. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For as Adam, for as in Adam all die. We inherited that sin nature from Adam. Because he sinned and was dead spiritually, we were born sp- dead spiritually. We're born blind to the light of God. And we're also, we're beggars. We're beggars. This man's physical blindness left him in poverty because he couldn't find his way. Couldn't find his way to a job. Couldn't find his way through doing any kind of physical task because he was blind physically. Well, our spiritual blindness leaves us in poverty because we can't find our way. Humanly, we can't find the way to heaven. We can't find the way to eternal life because we're blind spiritually to the light. So he is a perfect picture of our spiritual condition. And that's why this story is in here. So that's why it's important that we look at it, because he pictures us. And because he does, we need to understand the significance of this sign. We need to not just look at it and go, wow, that's cool. You know, he healed a blind guy. That's neat. Let's, let's follow him and see what he does next. No, we need to understand the significance of this, because this blind man is a picture of us. So the significance. One big, bold statement, Jesus is God's light for your darkness. Jesus is God's light for your darkness. John 9, 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is God's light to provide insight into new life in him. And I've got four points here I want us to look at that are significant in why this story affects us. And the first point is Jesus is seeking you. Jesus is seeking you. Just like in John 9, 1, where it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw the man blind from birth, and he stopped. He was seeking him. He is seeking us. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek us, and he's still seeking us. Um, I mean, a side note here, but important to the point. The Bible doesn't avoid difficult issues. You know, a lot of people say, well, the Bible just doesn't specifically talk about this or that because it's old. Well, not true. The Bible doesn't avoid tough issues. Right here, he takes on people with disabilities. And he takes on, uh, we saw in the story of the crippled man a few weeks ago that Chris talked about. He dealt with the story of disabilities. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul even talks about he had some infirmity, some difficulty that God would not take away from him. And we'll talk about that a little more later. When we see the Bible doesn't shy away from tough issues, we just have to read the Bible. We have to understand what he's saying. But God didn't, Jesus didn't, you know, oh yeah, blind guy, and keep walking. He stopped. He noticed him. He understood his need. He understood his condition. Jesus sought him out. And Jesus is seeking us. It may be for healing. It may be for sustaining us in spite of it. But Jesus is seeking us, and the point we need to really understand from that is the second significance. And that is, God is not focused on the cause, but on the purpose. God isn't focused on the cause, but on the purpose, and that is His glory. The purpose He is after is His glory. In John 9, 3, as we go through the story, um, well, 9, 2, the disciples say, Hey, who's at fault? Who sinned, this man or his parents? It was a common belief then that any infirmity, any problem that came in life was due to sin. 
And so the disciples were focused on the cause. Who causes? Who's to blame? Now, I don't, you know, hopefully you all don't work at a place like I do where anything that's good gets twisted into something bad. It, I, I think it's in the Swedish hormones coming over. Or so, I don't know. But three or four years ago, they had some training that they put us all through you know, to make us better employees. And one of the big points they pushed was personal accountability. They say, when something goes wrong, when something isn't done on time, don't look for who's to blame. Just take personal accountability for your part in it, and let's get it done. Well, that all sounds good. And and, and there is some truth in it. I'm not going to deny it. But what it's turned into is instead of saying, okay, who's to blame? We say, all right, who's accountable for this mess? So we've just taken accountable and blame and made them synonyms, you know. So it's, it's what we humans do. We want to know whose fault it is, right? That's what we do. Who's to blame? And that's what the disciples did here. They said, who's to blame for this? And in verse 3, Jesus said, that's not the point. It's neither this man nor his parents. It's so the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is saying it's not the cause that we're concerned with here. It's the purpose. It's what we're going to be able to see God do. Now, in you know, background, Genesis chapter 3, Romans 8, it makes it clear that physical suffering and death entered into the world because of Adam's sin. So in that global sense, suffering is here because of sin. But it does not teach that every specific suffering is due to a specific sin. And so in this case, Jesus is telling him not to look in the past for causes, which in this case he says don't even exist, but to look to the future for the purpose and what God is going to accomplish. Now, this raises a possible objection, which I read a lot about and thought a lot about. And the question is, would God allow suffering intentionally? And that is a question that has been dealt with forever and will be until we're in heaven because it gets back to the sovereignty of God. And that's sovereignty of God is an awesome study. It's a study that is deeper than my brain can go most days. And it's, from a human standpoint, it's not totally understandable because he's God. And I'm glad I worship a God that's a little bit bigger than I am, a whole lot bigger than I am, that I fully don't understand him. But it's the sovereignty of God. In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses was trying to push back and say, Hey, God, I I can't handle this. I can't go forward with this. God said, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He said, I make people the way they are. In Psalms 139, wonderful passage there, David wrote, He said, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David saying, you planned me before I was even born. You had everything all planned out. You made me the way I am. You knitted me together. That's just, that's just a cool f- picture. You made me the way I am. And so, if an all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe has a plan for our lives, which David and, and the recording there in Exodus both say, if that all-powerful, all-knowing God has a plan for our lives, then at the time of our conception, if there's an irregularity in the sperm or an irregularity in the egg, and he knows it's going to cause a disability, could he not stop it? Of course he could. But he doesn't always. And that 
That's his sovereign will. That's his sovereign plan. What we need to look at, as Jesus urged them, is not the cause, but the purpose. And the purpose is that what he permits is for his purpose. What he permits is for his design. What he permits is for his plan. It's, it's beyond us, guys. It's beyond us to fully understand God. But what he permits, he permits because it's his plan. It's his plan. And in, John, in verse 3 here, he says it very clearly, that the works of God might be displayed in him. This was allowed, permitted, so that God's plan of displaying his glory could be seen in this man. And in this case, that glory was seen through healing. And that's what we always pray for, isn't it? We pray that God will display his power through healing someone. We pray that God will display his power through, you know, making this a successful surgery. Or, you know, that's what we always pray for. We pray for healing. And in this case, it's what it was. But in the case of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12 records this. Paul uh, writing, he says, there was, a thorn, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, something that bothered him. Whether, you know, it's never recorded what type of infirmity it was, what kind of difficulty it was. But he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul goes on to write, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's saying that, hey, I pled with God to show his power by healing me. I implored him. It's a powerful word, implored him. But God's response was, my plan for you is not to show my power in healing. My plan for you is to show my power by sustaining you through this with my grace. God's plan wasn't healing. God's plan was sustaining grace in Paul's life. And we don't know. Only God knows. But if Paul had not had that thorn, would he have been molded into the image of what God could use to write the epistles? I mean, the core of our Christian beliefs are in his epistles. If God had not sustained Paul through that, but rather healed him, would we have what we have? Yeah, God would have used somebody else. God would have revealed himself. But the Apostle Paul would not have been involved, possibly. So God gave him sustaining grace in the face of that disability or in the face of that adversity, in the face of situations we don't choose. And, you know, if you dwell on this long enough, you go from, you know, disability to adversity to something you don't choose. I, I got into this thinking pattern that, you know, he can sustain us in things that aren't just physical disabilities. He can sustain us through emotional issues. He can sustain us through loneliness. He can sustain us through stressful situations. And, and then I stopped because, okay, that's getting personal enough. I may have to apply this. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm wanting to do here, God. This is, you're getting personal. Stressful situations, you can sustain me through that? Yes, he can. The same God that could sustain Paul through a physical infirmity can sustain us through what's in our life. So God allows things so that he can sustain us. Because I think 
and I've, uh, you know, just talking through this with people I work with that are not believers and a couple that are believers, and just not specifically about this lesson, but just over the last few months about stress in the workplace. It is amazing what God's sustaining grace can do to set you apart from others. And I, I'm far from perfect at this. Don't, don't say, hey, Jerry's got it together. Let's have a little chat. <laughs> we can chat, but I don't have this all together. But just talking with other people and seeing their reactions and seeing their, just how they deal with it. God's sustaining grace is an amazing thing in any situation. So we can pray for God's power for healing, or we can pray for God's power to remove us from a certain situation. But we also need to realize that his purpose may be to display his sustaining grace to those around us and to to our life. But like the Jews in Jesus' day, it's easier to ooh and ah at the cool stuff happening, isn't it? It's easier to look at that and go, wow, you know, he healed a blind guy, or he healed so-and-so of cancer, or he, you know, man, they, they reconstructed his knee and it's better than, you know. It's easy to ooh and ah at those physical things, just like the Jews did at the signs they were seeing. But it's easy to miss how we need to apply the significance of that in our lives. So the significance is God has a purpose. And that purpose is his glory, which may come through healing. It may come through sustaining grace. And we need to be openly willing to accept both, either or both, because that's God's plan. But accepting this, accepting whichever way comes, especially if we're accepting sustaining grace, requires a growing faith. And that's the third significance I see here. Growing in faith requires exposure to the light. And when you write light, use a capital L. That's the light of God. That's Jesus. Growing in faith requires exposure to the light. If we look at the, there were four steps in the beggar's spiritual progression that come out within this story. Four different steps. The first one, they ask him how he was healed, and he says, well, a man called Jesus put clay on my eyes, I washed it off, and I was healed. He says, a man called Jesus. That could be a man called Todd, a man called Bob, a man, you know. He's a man called Jesus. He, he knew what he knew. He knew that somebody came along that he couldn't see. He put something on his eyes, he washed it off, and now he sees. First step is he acknowledged something happened, but he didn't know. He just didn't know. The second step in his spiritual progress is, comes later in verse 17 when the Pharisees have been questioning. They're saying, who do you say he was? He says, well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Now, this starts putting him in the category with like Moses or Elijah, other people in Jewish history that did perform miracles. So he's starting to give him, as more physical light's coming into his eyes, more spiritual light is also beginning to dawn within him. And he's saying, you know, this, this isn't just a man. This isn't just a man called Jesus. This, you know, this guy's special. He's a prophet. He has some power given by God, or he couldn't do this. So that's his second step. His third step is, in verse 33, he calls him a man of God. He says, if this were not from God, he could do nothing. He's saying, you know, if this guy wasn't really of God, he couldn't heal me. At this point, his faith is, going, is moving into boldness. He's no longer just giving facts. He's starting to say, you know, this isn't just an ordinary thing. Nobody's ever been healed like this. This is an act of God. This man is from God. 
he's beginning to really make the connection here. And then the fourth step in his spiritual progress we see is when Jesus comes back to talk to him after he's been kicked out of the synagogue, after he's through with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, who is he? And Jesus says, it's me. And the beggar says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And that's stressed in that, word, in that verse that he worshipped him. So we see now the beggar displays what we all have to experience. In our lives, it's not enough to believe that Jesus exists. It's not enough to believe that he has some power from God, that he's a little different from normal. It's not enough to say that you know, he's, he's really a man of God. We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To accept him as our Savior, to have our eternal destiny controlled by him, we have to believe he is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah. 1 John 5, 1 says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's what you must believe. Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised one of God. And we see in each step of this blind man's progress, each time he faced resistance or faced further questioning or faced you know, an unknown crowd of people, we see his faith grew a little more. And that's because he was exposed longer and more deeply to the true light of God, which is Jesus Christ. Each time he went through the story, each time he rehearsed it in his mind, each time he relived it, he began to be exposed more to that power until finally he saw Jesus face to face and he said, Lord, I believe. I believe. So he went through what we all have to go through, that acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. But along the way, he met a lot of resistance and that's what helped to build his faith. And that's not good news because that's telling us to build our faith. We're going to face resistance. I personally don't like resistance. I like playing basketball by myself. Nobody with their hand in my face. You know, nobody, hey, come on. It's easy, right? Well, kind of easier. But we're going to face resistance. And as Christ followers, we need to expect that. Because if we're truly a Christ follower, our lifestyle is going to be different from people around us. I mean, it's just going to be different. And our lifestyle is going to be different because... Our choices will be different. We're just going to make different choices than people around us. Choices in how we spend our Sunday morning, right? Yeah, I, I know a lot of people sitting at home, waking up. Yeah, probably about now. You know, getting a cup of coffee, turning on the morning, you know, early sports shows, getting ready for the games. We make different choices, Right? Our lifestyle is different because we make different choices. We make different choices in how we spend our money. We make different choices in causes we support. And we make those choices differently because our priorities are different. Our priorities are different. If we're a Christ follower, our priorities are different from those around us that are not Christ followers. And our priorities are different because our core beliefs are different. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe he is worthy of controlling our life. We believe, and because we believe, we make those choices. And our life is different. So as Christ followers, we'll meet resistance. Jesus said we would. He said, hey, they rejected me, they'll reject you. I mean, look at Jesus. His life, he was rejected by those of his own nationality. He was rejected by those of his own race. He was rejected by his hometown. He was rejected by his own family. 
And he said, if they reject me, they'll reject you. He said, you will face resistance. But as a Christ follower, what that means is actually good news. It means if we face resistance, if we meet with resistance, we're going the right way. If we meet with resistance, it's because we're doing the right thing. Jesus said it would be this way. So what should we do? Stay with it. Stay with the message. Stay with the lifestyle you've chosen. The blind man did. His story throughout this was, I was blind, but now I see. He may have come to understand that a little more deeply along the way, but he never changed his message. He said, I know what happened to me. And that's what we should be like. We should never change our message because we know what happened to us and we know who did it. And that message is going to flow from the fourth thing. The fourth significance, while we focus on being givers and doers in our life, Jesus is seeking worshipers. Jesus is seeking worshipers. The fourth step that the beggar took was there in verse 38 when he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Worship, the word means reverent honor and respect. It just means an awe-inspired feeling of, wow, (laughs) you're all there is. You're my everything. I worship Vicki. She's my wife. She's my everything. I kind of worship my kids, but wouldn't have them without her, so it's her, right? You look skeptical. This is not one of those, hmm, I wonder moments. This is kind of, you know, hey, this is real. (laughs) But we're to worship God, and that's what this beggar did. And, you know, that's the last thing recorded about this blind beggar. He never comes up in the commentary of John or any other gospel again. It's never recorded if he became you know, a big a mainstay in the, the first church in Jerusalem or anything, if he became a great giver to the cause. Nothing's ever recorded. All we know is what's recorded here, and that is that Jesus sought him out, and he became a worshiper. And that's what Jesus wanted. Jesus went back to talk to him and say, I want you to know who I am. And he said, I, he worshiped him. That's what Jesus wants. He wants worshipers. Now, if we truly worship, that'll result in giving. It'll result in doing. If we truly, truly worship God, we will want to be involved in what he's doing in the local church. We'll want to be doing things for him and giving to his cause. And giving and doing can be very important acts of worship, very inspirational to others around us even as they see our worship. But ultimately, what Jesus is seeking is just true worship that's from the heart. Just us worshiping him. That's what he's seeking. So those are the four significances I wanted us to see today. Jesus is seeking you like he sought the blind blind beggar. And God's concerned with the purpose. Not the cause, but the purpose, and that's his glory. And to grow in faith, we must be exposed to the light. We have to be around the light of Jesus Christ if we're going to grow. And he wants worshipers. You know, you can be involved in doing and going and all these things, but if you're doing it out of a different motive, you know, if it's the motive of, hey, as long as I'm doing these things, I'm probably okay. As long as I'm giving this much or as long as I'm getting involved in this, people are going to look at me like I'm okay. That, that's not okay. Worship. Let those things flow out of worship, but first things first, Jesus is seeking worshipers. Now, I put four questions in here for application. The first one's very simple, short, not easy. 
Do you worship Jesus? Is he your all in all? Do you worship Jesus? Do you find your worship of Jesus deepening or weakening in the midst of threat and danger? Do you tend to shy away when things get tough, or does that deepen your commitment to worship him? Does your worship falter or flourish when your family is unbelieving? When faced with family or friends that are unbelievers, does that draw you closer to God or farther from him so you can keep things cool with them, maybe? Do you confess him openly and defend him with your simple testimony like this man? I was blind, but now I see. All I know is what happened. All I know is what happened to me. Well, I want to give us three statements of encouragement to end on because I'll be honest, after I... These questions are not mine. I found those. But after I found them, I I debated a long time about putting them in here because they're tough. They're tough questions. But I want to leave us with some encouragement. First of all, be humbled to know that God has a wise, good, and Christ-exalting purpose for everything that happens to you. And that's humbling, that the God of the universe has a plan for my life. That's humbling, but in an encouraging way because I know it's planned by somebody that's got more control than I do. Secondly, be convinced that Jesus is the only path to the full, final, joyful experience of that purpose. As we saw this blind beggar grow in his faith, we need to grow in our faith to where we can, are convinced that Jesus is the only way. That's our way to accomplishing God's purpose in our life. And then be reassured That just as Jesus sought out this rejected blind beggar, he's seeking you to make you a courageous worshiper of Jesus. He's seeking us because he wants us to worship him. Because he knows that's the fulfillment of his plan. If we worship him, his plan will be fulfilled in us. So, hopefully, you gained from this. I gained it. It's always interesting. I'm, I'm nervous as all get out when I teach. But I gain so much because I'm forced to look at it. I don't just listen to it for 40 minutes. I'm forced to look at it and examine. And uh, this has been a challenging week in a lot of other ways also. But I hope this meant something. I hope you take this home, read those four questions. I hope you apply this this week in your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for being here with us today. And we thank you for your word and how it's so directly applicable to our life as we read these stories and understand your teaching. Just pray that you'd help us as we go this week to be worshipers of you. Help us to let our choices and our priorities lead us to a life that will show others that there is something in us that's not of us. Just help us now and help us as we invite people for Easter. Father, it's just next week. Help us not to overlook how quickly that's coming up. Pray that you'd be in the events on Saturday with the extravaganza. I just pray that the weather would be good. I pray that all the workers would be healthy and be there. And just pray that there'd be a good number come out so that we could share your word and share your love with them. Just guide us now through the worship service and bless Pastor Bruce as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.